This morning's sermon text is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. This is Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. A couple things just to point out here because I'm, I'm taking this text in a, a little different direction. If I was just preaching the Great Commission, there would be a, a certain flow and content to that sermon, but we're talking about closeness to Jesus, how that's developed, what that's like. And so just to point a couple of things out that we won't get to in the sermon, where he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. If you've watched baptisms in church, you recognize that, uh, that cadence, that we do that. But what's interesting about that is that's terrible grammar. But it's very intentional theology. Name requires a plural. And so he says, name singular, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is uh, part of our doctrine of the Trinity. God is one being in three persons. He's not three gods. It would be three names. He's one God in three persons. And so you've got the um, identification part of this. Disciples identify with Jesus. Disciples need the information of Jesus. That's the teaching part. That's what we're doing when we're making disciples. We're moving people from acceptance of Jesus to allegiance to Jesus. And there's an identification that comes with that. That's the baptism. And there's an information. It's not a uh, a cerebral thing only, an information download, as it were, the teaching. The teaching is also practices, but this is the Great Commission. Now, we're concluding this series in which we've considered closeness to Jesus. We're concluding it with this text. We've been in Matthew talking about how do we live into the name, live into a little different angle than live up to. And the previous three Sundays, we've been in come to me texts. We looked at Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. And then we looked at Matthew 16, the Sunday after that, if you come after me, you'll have to take up your cross and follow me. And then we looked at Matthew 24 last weekend, the disciples asking the question, what's the sign of your coming back? You're saying you're going to go away. Well, when are you going to come back and what's that going to look like? And he talks about the end times. And now we conclude in chapter 28 with go. <laughs> so our cadence has been come to me, come after me. When are you coming back? And now here's the work you do in the meantime, go. And, and verse 19 here where go is, it's, it's actually more the sense of as you're going. I'm sure you've probably heard this being taught the great commission, a, a number of settings, a number of times. The imperative here is not go. The action is not go. The action is make disciples. And the sense of it is, as you're going, make disciples. And I simply want to say from this that we don't get close to Jesus without being in his work. 
So that's why we're talking about this text in this context of what is closeness to Jesus. We, we have to be involved in his work. Jesus says over in uh, John records it, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so closeness to him is loving him and experiencing uh, his, his goodness. But here's one of the commandments. Make disciples. And as you're going, as you're going communicates accessibility to others. Not just others in your immediate circle of influence, but others well beyond it to all the nations. God puts us where people can get to us. He doesn't put us out of reach of people. We do that to ourselves, put ourselves out of reach of people. God puts us where people can get to us because the call to make disciples is the call to become the friends of souls. A lot of philosophical wrangling goes on over how to understand the concept of soul. I'm using that in the title, friends of souls. Now, this is a holiday weekend, so we're not allowed to philosophize on a holiday weekend. So we're not going to engage in all of that uh, banter that goes back thousands of years on what is the soul. The simplest way to think about it is that a soul designates our accountability to God in our humanity. That in a, a way that's unique among all creatures, created living things, human beings are souls in that our deepest destiny as human beings is to give an account of our lives before God. We're all accountable to God as humanity. So our, our soul is who we are in the presence of God, if you want to put it in a, in a simple terminology. And I talk about souls. We're talking about making disciples of all nations. Here's the text, the Great Commission. We know it. But how do you think of people? And I want us to think of people purposefully as souls because we are conditioned in our cultural context to think of people as selves, even as brands. If you're an influencer, you know, on social media, my daughter loves this kid on TikTok that is the cousin of my other daughter's roommate in college, and he's got two million followers on TikTok, some 16-year-old in a suburb of Huntsville. Now, that's not good for any 16-year-old to have two million people waiting breathlessly for his next dance move in his kitchen. So uh, we think of ourselves now as selves, even as brands. And the difference is a self isn't accountable to God. These selves aren't conditioned to think of themselves as accountable to God. We're conditioned to think of the self as autonomous, a law to ourselves. If we're going to make disciples, and if we're going to experience closeness to Jesus by doing his work, being involved in his work, we need to see people as souls. And we need to seek to befriend souls, people who will give themselves an account of themselves to God. You know, the, the very first, uh, this is, I'm sort of wrapping the, the series up here, the, the bow on it is the very first sermon was called The Friend of Sinners. And now we, we move to the friends of souls, which is us. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He wore that as a badge of honor. It was meant as a derisive insult. His enemies tagged him with that. He's the friend of sinners. Jesus wore it as a badge of honor. 
because he redeems people. He doesn't give us what we deserve, eternal separation from him, but he brings us in close to him and teaches us to observe all that he commands. That's part of the closeness. And we, in turn, export. We go out into the world as we have it around us, as it is beyond us. We go out and we become the friends of souls in service to the friend of sinners because people are sinners and accountable to God in our humanity. Who we are before God is sinful. We've established, we establish that every Sunday, I think, in looking at Scripture. But because we're God's image bearers, because we're unique among all created beings, we yet house this dignity in ourselves, and souls is the way to speak of that reality before God. And souls are dynamic. Souls are complex, not simple. And frequently, souls are in transition of some kind, moving from light to darkness and from evil to good, etc. And so whatever else discipleship means, whatever else discipleship involves or does, in making disciples, we will learn to make adjustments to people as we find them because souls are complex, not simple. Now, God is the one making disciples. Uh, he gets the capital M and the capital D in making disciples. Ours is the small M and the small D in this. So he's working through us. He doesn't need us. One of the axioms I try to live by is God doesn't need me, but he can use me. And so as he does, as he uses us in his work of helping people grow into everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus, this becomes another dimension of experiencing closeness to Jesus, being involved in his work, intersecting with people's lives as we find them and helping them grow from there up to or into a relationship with Jesus. Let me take uh, two directions with this, two angles on this in our interests of closeness to Jesus. The first being, and this, is, uh, this sermon is, is more of a, of, a, of a way of looking at things. There is a practice to making disciples. We can get into nuts and bolts of that, and I'll, I can come back to that in another message. But I, I just as angles on this work that Jesus is always involved in and invites us in on with him, a couple of angles. First being we should look at making disciples as coming alongside another, not taking them over. And second, we should look at making disciples as taking part in a great story. So whatever else discipleship is and does, whatever practices it involves, whatever disciplines it involves, as a framework, being involved in the work of Jesus, experiencing closeness to him as we involve ourselves in his work, as we observe all that he's commanded us and he's commanded us to make disciples, we should look at making disciples as coming alongside another, not taking them over. And we should look at making disciples as taking part in a great story. So making disciples harnesses the work of God. This is what Jesus was here to do and is continuing to do as the world goes on. Making disciples and experiencing closeness to Jesus at the same time through it 
First, we should look at making disciples as coming alongside another, not taking them over. I think discipleship flows best when we work with people as we find them, not as we would make them. To make a disciple of Jesus in the small m, small d, make disciples, to make a disciple of Jesus is not to take ownership of someone else's life in Christ. High control, high conformity approaches to making disciples generally does more harm than good because it ends up setting up an allegiance to ourselves and to our template. And in doing that, we we won't be as patient or as gentle with others as Jesus is because Jesus gave himself for them. I didn't. They're his people, not mine. Notice, uh, just to pick this up in the text, the scent, the whiff of this, look at verse 17 again. And when they saw him, this is the 11 disciples. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Isn't it fascinating? I love the honesty of the scriptures. It's fascinating that the thing that if you were making this up, you would surely leave that out. If you're making up the story as you go, you want these robust, bold disciples. Jesus lost none of them, but it says the 11. So he's lost one, down one, the one who betrayed him. And some doubted, it says... A lot of us would like to leave that out, particularly in the giving of the Great Commission, the marching orders, if you will, for the church, the the tune that we are to step by. And he includes, Matthew includes in this, in his recollection of it, some of the disciples doubted. Yes, discipleship wants to see people move from acceptance of Jesus to allegiance to Jesus, but this doesn't mean every sailor is a seal. Jesus commissioned those who still had questions, who still had struggles. Now, as you get to the book of Acts, you see a boldness taking over these 11, filled with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost makes a huge difference in their witness. They're no longer hiding in an upper room. They're out. They're being persecuted. They're rejoicing in their persecutions because in that they experience a closeness to Jesus, going through the same thing he did. So the boldness happens for these guys. But when we think about varied approaches that are out there to discipleship, is there room for the struggler in yours? I once knew a church that emphasized a discipleship process really meant to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, it was a church that kind of set itself up for under the personality of this particular pastor. This was the place the serious Christians were. The only problem with that is is they mowed down parts of their field in being so overbearing. It wasn't a safe place for people who struggled, for people who were hurting, for people who said, hey, I discipled my children and I still had a couple of them go astray. I followed the book. I did it the way you said do it. A church culture with low expectations is usually too lax. But if you go to the opposite and become high control, high conformity culture, it easily breeds spiritual pride. And these churches, they're very well intentioned. 
They consider themselves serious about the Great Commission and, and would that we all be serious about it, but they take themselves so seriously in it. And so they become hard on people who doubt or hurt or otherwise struggle with questions. Could you be safe for someone like that? Jesus was. He still is. The bruised reed he will not break. That's how the prophet Isaiah describes him. When we take people as they are and depend on Christ to change them as he will, and we can point the way to needed changes they need to make. There, there's a time and a place to confront and to challenge and to correct. Don't hear me saying there isn't. But when we take people as we find them, not as we would make them, and depend on Jesus to change them, we stay in range ourselves of the Lord's gentleness and patience and kindness to his people. I know some believers who are seriously down on God's people right now. And when it comes right down to it, the reason they are so down on the people of God is because not enough of them are just like them. And this is something that we can all, uh, you know, uh, become if, we, if, we're not, uh, if we're not careful before the Lord on this. But I know some people who, th who feel the rest of us ought to be more like them, need to see things like they're seeing it, need to have the very same concerns and carry them the same way. Are you or I the measure of who someone else needs to approximate in Christ? I mean, our lives can teach, our knowledge can teach, our practices can commend. God has it that way. He wants us to guide, but he doesn't ask us to mold. We should look at making disciples as coming alongside another. Discipleship that wants to be close to Jesus, you come alongside his people, you don't take them over. And then the second angle of two that I want us to consider in doing the work of Jesus, which has got to be part of any consideration of being close to him. And so we went to, you know, kind of the ultimate expression of his work, make disciples. As you're going, make disciples of all nations baptizing them, the identification, teaching them the information, not just a download of head knowledge, but how the heart gets involved, what kind of practices do I need to develop a love for someone I cannot see, but know is there, who presently I don't see all things subject to him, but I believe they are. Living in this world as it is, God did not assign me to live in the 17th century, he put me in the 21st. And so with all that in mind, the second angle, doing the work of Jesus and experiencing closeness to him in and through giving ourselves to the work, we should look at making disciples as taking part in a great story. We're in that story. God has brought us in. They could be those out there, be they in our family friend network, be they in our neighborhood, be they in our office or school, be they on the other side of the world, and we'll meet them next summer when we can hopefully take mission trips again, etc., and so on. In our present time, here, here's why I talk with you about story. I think everybody loves a good story. I think there's something about human nature that we respond to story, particularly 
the heroic story where good triumphs over evil. We love that, and there's a reason why. And particularly as Christians, we love those stories because every hero story, every story of the quest fulfilled, it's an echo of what Jesus accomplished for us. You know, I can watch certain movies and stories and suddenly I'm kind of teary, you know. And it's like, this is a comedy. What do you... <laughs> That's what Jesus did for me. You know, you've seen movies and stories, you read things, you, you come across things and you say, man, that, that act of sacrifice right there, that's, that's otherworldly. I love the portrayal of that. that. That reminds me of someone. I know who it reminds me of. It's indirect, but direct at the same time in a paradoxical way. And so I, I, wanna, I just want to put some things in your ear here for you to think on. File this under uh, what Francis Schaeffer talked about as pre-evangelism. Because as you move out into our world as it is, particularly our cultural context, and it's like this everywhere in America, the South is, is kind of the, the, the place that's the, you can, you can find it the, the least here, but it's still here. In our present time, souls, the way I want us to think about people as accountable to God, souls are not taking well to traditionalism. Tradition is fine, but traditionalism means you've, you've long forgotten the why. You just do it because that's the way it's supposed to be done. Tradition can articulate the why we do it this way. Souls don't like traditionalism. They don't like institutionalism. They don't like Protestant nominalism, and nor should they. You know, sometimes the world preaches messages the church needs to hear. I remember... Uh, uh, reading in Richard Mao uh, that years ago he was sitting in a Grand Rapids church and he heard a preacher named Clarence Boomsma, one of those great Dutch names like Boer, Ken Boer is Dutch. And Clarence Boomsma was preaching on Jonah and the sailors and he said if you give us the choice between the pagans and the prophet we'll take the prophet every time but in that story the pagans are actually closer to the truth when they say Jonah you're endangering our lives running from God. And Boomsma's point was sometimes the world is preaching messages the church needs to hear. And the world is saying to us right now, enough of your nominalism. Enough of your nationalism. Give us the church. Be the church. Be the people of God, of one kingdom overall. But in the reign of self... That's what you live in. I live in. We live in the reign of self. Is it any wonder we find people curating their beliefs? The thing to do now is to mix and match. You don't buy anything wholesale. You mix it. You match it. You improvise it. People are not rejecting religion so much as they are remixing it. They are prioritizing the intuitional, what they feel what they desire, they prioritize that much more than the institutional, what somebody else tells them. How do we make disciples of folks like that? How do we get them interested in God's great story found in his word? Ultimately, the Lord's Spirit does that. Ultimately, God the Spirit has to overcome unbelief, rip the, 
blinders off of eyes, open them to see. And he uses you and me in that. And by and large, as a resource, evangelical Christians tend to be suspicious of imagination because we're, we're deep literalists. But I think we miss opportunities to use stories, stories that resonate with people, stories that they know already, that they already relate to as a way of segueing people into God's great story. We're always trying to go for intellect and bypass imagination. You just need to hear the Bible, we say. And the gospel is the power of God, and the gospel comes through the hearing of the Word of God, all true core belief. People do need to hear the Bible to be saved. There is no salvation apart of the Word of God animating the person of Jesus for someone. That's how people come to know Him. We need the Bible, and we need to show people that we know the Bible and can help them meet God in and through His Word. At first, though, when you just encounter someone coming from this culture as they do, you may need a tuning fork. You may need a way to segue them from what they believe to considering something transcendent and above them and yet wants to be near them. An appeal to imagination can often clear out the underbrush for the story of God via the Word of God to be heard. That's why I think we, we do well to be familiar with the stories that are out there. We have our own stories. I say this because many hear our gospel not as the great story of God, the God of the universe, personally sacrificing himself to redeem a people he will glorify in his presence for all eternity. They don't hear that as much as they hear us hawking traditionalism and institutionalism and nominalism and conservatism and Bible thumping. C.S. Lewis said in an essay he wrote called Sometimes Fairy Stories Say Best What Needs to Be Said. I've shared this with you before. He said this about the power of story, why he wrote stories like the Narnia tales. His words, I saw how stories could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did I find it so hard to feel as I was told one ought to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? An obligation to feel can freeze feelings. And reverence itself did harm because the whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it were something medical. But suppose you cast these things in an imaginary world. He means by these things, the great truths, the only truths, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the way to God. Suppose you put this in an imaginary world, stripping it of its stained glass and Sunday school associations, might that make them for the first time appear in their real potency? Could we not then steal past those watchful dragons? That's why the Narnian stories came into existence. It was in service to tuning for the gospel, engaging the imagination in such a way that desire for Jesus is piqued, like in the paragraph that concludes the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. Here's how the series ends. And as he, Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. 
And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was the only beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's a way of getting potential disciples past the watchful dragons of institutional religion they otherwise think they should avoid. It's about trying to help the self out there recover its soul. Someone might walk with hobbits on their way to Jesus. It's happened. When Sam and Frodo come to the darkest part of their journey, to the evil land of Mordor, they're going to destroy the ring of power there. That's why they're there. Sam, in despair, looks up at the black sky. The place is totally covered in darkness. And Tolkien describes it this way. See if you don't hear echoes. Far above the mountains in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land, hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. That takes me somewhere. That takes me somewhere real and high and transcendent and yet imminent at the same time. The love of God for us in Christ. The reason that's powerful is not just because it's beautiful, but because it echoes the hope the gospel preaches. It brings that hope near. Dostoevsky, in his great novel, Crime and Punishment, he has a scene where he imagines Jesus welcoming all these drunkards to himself. He's imagining it in, a, in an imagined novel. Jesus is welcoming all these drunkards, and there's this crowd of wise men who are saying to him, what are you doing? This is not the kind of people you want. But Jesus says to them, the reason I receive them is because none of them think themselves worthy of my reception. Is Dostoevsky adding to scripture? No. That scene in his novel has the ring of gospel truth. Likewise, Flannery O'Connor telling a story where a woman is standing outside her pig pen on her farm and she is given a vision of everyone she considers herself better than parading into heaven and just like she thought they were, they're singing and making fools of themselves, clapping in an undignified way, but there's no doubt where they're heading. And she can't stand it because she thinks heaven is for good white folks like her. There's a racial element in that particular story. Even Harry Potter, oh no, oh yes. Do you realize, here's what I want you to know about, do you realize how influential that series of stories is to its fan base and how wide that fan base is? If you go back and look at footage of the March for Our Lives, remember the Parkland, Florida school shooting? And all those kids uh, organized uh, a, a march do you know how many Harry Potter signs there were? In the, and you say, well, I don't like what the Harry Potter, I don't like Harry Potter, I don't like what the sign said, I don't like those liberal kids. Let, watch them. 
If you're interested in making disciples, you got to listen. You got to see. There's all these Harry Potter signs. What is that about? There's signs that said, if Hogwarts students can defeat the Death Eaters, then U.S. students can defeat the NRA. They're using the story. They had another sign, Dumbledore's army still recruiting. That's a reference to, in the story, there's a teenage guerrilla group that bands together to fight the Dark Lord Voldemort. Uh, Hermione uses knowledge, not guns. That was another sign. And then there was a sign, Expellamaris, which is the Hogwarts disarmament spell. What's going on? A writer named uh, Tara Burton says, Harry Potter isn't just a story people enjoy reading. It's measurable impact on a whole generation's moral universe. In an age where fewer and fewer people read or know the Bible, the media properties of fan culture like Harry Potter become the closest thing they have to sacred texts. And so if you know a little something about that, you can segue to the gospel. Like the scene in Harry Potter where Harry realizes Lord Voldemort cannot touch him without experiencing physical pain. And Harry goes to Dumbledore and he says, why is that? And Dumbledore says, because your mother sacrificed herself for you in love. And he can't touch that. And you look at that as a Christian and you say, what would I say to the Harry Potter fan? What would I say sitting next to somebody in a public setting, six feet apart, of course, and we get into a conversation and I find out they really like Harry Potter. And I go, oh, remember that scene in Harry Potter where, you know, Lord Voldemort uh, has pain when he touches him? And yeah, yeah, they love that scene. They love that story. And suddenly we can say, isn't sacrifice at the heart of real love and now what are you talking about (laughs) you're talking about what real love is with scripture and how we can know the realest and truest of loves not just in a story but in turning our lives over to God through Jesus following him again what I'm telling you is what Francis Schaeffer used to call pre-evangelism appealing to the imagination is one way we can do that Look at discipleship as taking part in a great story. The great story, which all other great hero stories and quest stories, they echo and they ring on. We're trying to get souls past the watchful dragons and we'll use what's out there. The stories people know and identify with and resonate with and love to try to get them to what they really need. And that's the Lord of everything. The one who's been given authority over all heaven and earth, whose name, at whose name every knee will bow, every tongue confess to the glory of his Father, that he's Lord. This is the gospel by which disciples are made. Thanks be to God. Would you stand with me? Let's pray and we'll sing. Father, thank you for giving us a a message that resonates all over the world. We find it particularly hard to get through in our own cultural context. And I think sometimes, Lord, there's a lot of things we leave in the bag. We sort of adopt this one way, one method. The message is one way, but the methods are multiple, Lord. Help us to see that. Make us opportune. 
Make us wise and discerning. Uh, that we live up to what you taught when you said the, the sons of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own than the sons of the light. Of the light. Lord, make us shrewd. We don't want to be manipulative in that. We want to be effective. You don't need any one of us, but you want to use us, and we want to be used by you. Because in being used by you, we, it, we do experience closeness to you. And to be close to you, we need to be in your work. You've called us to observe all that you've commanded, and you've commanded us to make disciples. And so, Lord, may that be a priority for us, not just something we hear about on a Sunday morning, but something we're doing and practicing, trying every way we know to get over a wall with people that you will crush ultimately. But for now... It's there, and we have to use strategy. Help us in that, Lord, to know what to do, how to do it, and that your word goes ahead of us and is honored. And if somebody catches the tune before they know the lyrics, that we can fill the lyrics in. Lord, uh, raise up in your church uh, a disciple-making task force that wants to see this happen while there's still time. We do enough lamenting and complaining and filling up on fear about what life is like beyond these walls. But in reality, Lord, these are days where being alive to you is an advantage. And so help us, Lord, in our weakness and our frailty, in all that we miss, to yet see the things we cannot miss and to point people to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.